This morning we are going to continue in our series from the Minor Prophets, Waiting in Hope. This morning we're going to be in in the prophet Zechariah, the book of Zechariah. As I mentioned last week, there is no shame in this series of opening your Bible to the table of contents to try to find the Minor Prophets. They're found in the back of the Old Testament. They're kind of towards the middle of your Bible. They're the place when you're flipping through your Bible, you come to Psalms and Proverbs, and then you kind of skip all the way into the New Testament oftentimes. And so you skip right over lots of these these passages. And so that's one of the reasons why we've brought them up for this season. One of the reasons is because we don't often get to the minor prophets. We don't often see what they're sharing about. We don't often hear from them, and so that's one reason why we've brought them out here for this season of Advent, is that we want to be reminded that all of Scripture, from beginning to end, from, genera- from generation, from Genesis to Revelation, is all one story, and it all points to Jesus, every passage, even in the Minor Prophets. And so today we're going to be in Zechariah. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's page 794 is where we'll be in Zechariah chapter 3. If you're flipping through your own Bible, it's going to be found between Haggai and Malachi in the Old Testament. It's a little bit one of the, Zechariah is one of the longer of the minor prophets, and so you might be able to find it there. It's got a few more chapters than some of the others. Zechariah, last week we were in the, in the book of Amos, and, and Amos was one of the earliest prophets. He was probably, uh, historically, chronologically, he was probably a number two. Jonah is probably the, the, the prophecy that was written first, and then Amos was probably the second prophet to come about. As I mentioned last week, he came as the, as the nations had, had been divided. Uh, it was a couple hundred years after David's reign, Solomon then reigned, and then Then the nations were split into two. The northern tribes, ten northern tribes, went off on their own. They became the country, the nation of Israel. And then two southern tribes, Judah and the Levites, were together in the southern country, the southern nation. They became the nation of Judah. And then... And then we have a number of prophets who, who walked through those different years. And then we come to Zechariah. He is one of the last of the prophets. Uh, he, he probably comes uh, somewhere 300 years or so after the prophet of Amos. So it's one of the later prophetic books. It happens somewhere around 520 B.C. is when Zechariah is writing these things. Amos, as you remember, last week he prophesied that one of the things that was going to happen to the northern kingdom, he was from the southern kingdom, went into the northern kingdom. One of the things that Amos prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel was that they were going to be destroyed, that God was raising up another people, another nation to come and to punish them for the ways in which they had lived, the ways that they had disregarded God's laws. And that there was another country that was coming, and I mentioned last week that it was going to be the Assyrians. The Assyrian army does come 85 years or so after Amos. God does raise up the Assyrians, and they do. They do come into that northern kingdom. They, they, the northern kingdom, Israel, falls. It's no longer a kingdom. Those people are marched in exile, and, and that kingdom is never again brought back together. And they're gone. 
And the rest of the story, as we walk through the Old Testament then, just focuses on the tribes of Judah and the Levites, but they call that kingdom Judah. It's just the kingdom of Judah. But in 586 B.C., that first kingdom fell somewhere around 722 After that, somewhere around 586, another country, the Babylonians, come and invade Judah. And they march in, and they invade the people, they destroy the temple, they wipe out all of those things that the the Jewish believers, the Israelites, had held dear in Jerusalem, wipe those out, and then, in fact, actually march the Israelites Israelites, the Judahites, out of their country and off to Babylon. And you know some of those stories. They come from the book of Daniel. Daniel was one of those who would have been marched off and taken off into the exile. So all of those things have happened before we get to Zechariah. All of those things happened between Amos and the prophet Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah and Haggai, the, 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 the book right before Zechariah in your Bible, these two prophets, these two minor prophets, come on the scene as people are being, as the Israelites are coming now back to Jerusalem. They're coming back into the country. They've been exiled off to Babylon, but now they've been allowed to come back, and they come back to find that the temple has been destroyed, that there's nothing in their city, that there's nowhere for them to live, and they come back, and they, they, they are able to begin to rebuild, or they're called to begin to rebuild their homes and to rebuild the temple. And so that's where these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, come on the scene, right about at the same time. When they get to, to, to the land and they find that the exiles have been there and they've been uh, rebuilding, and the idea was that they had been rebuilding the temple, but the reality was that these people had come back and they had spent time rebuilding their own homes or homes for them to live in, but they had not been rebuilding the temple because there was, it was hard for them. There's a lot of difficulties in their rebuilding. They, can't, they had come up against lots of obstacles. And so they had given up on rebuilding the temple, on rebuilding God's home, but had continued in preparing a place for themselves and building their own home. So one of the prophecies that these two men come and share together is that it's time for you to get serious about rebuilding the temple. How can you come and spend time building your own home but not God's home? And so they call the Israelites to repent and they call them to begin to worship in the ways that they had been called to worship and not to follow through in the sins of their forefathers. That, that is how Zechariah comes on the scene. Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, is not like the book of Amos. Last week, the book of Amos was, was, uh, uh, was a prophecy telling of the death and darkness and destruction of God over and over and over. And we walked our way through the book of Amos last week, walking our way through all of those prophecies, all of those instructions that God was going to give that they needed to repent because God was coming against them. And then, at the very end, after eight and a half chapters of death and darkness and destruction, after eight and a half chapters, there's four verses, a spark of hope in the end of Amos. 
Zechariah is not like the book of Amos. Zechariah is, is a book that's it's, it's actually pretty hard to read. It'll be pretty difficult for you to read through because it doesn't follow along in one cohesive story. It's not a list of instructions and prophecies that come against the Israelite people like the book of Amos was. Instead, it's filled with dreams and it's filled with visions. It has all kinds of startling imagery in it. It's not chronological. It jumps from time and place. In fact, there's some places where it jumps from the beginning all the way to the end in just a short amount of time, and it's hard to follow, and it's difficult to understand. It's chaos throughout the book of Zechariah as you read through it. But it's also filled with messianic promises. There's images, there's ideas over and over of the hope that is to come, that there is a promised Messiah that is to come. And in fact, Zechariah, of all the prophets, Zechariah is the one that's quoted or alluded to the most in the New Testament. 71 times the the book of Zechariah, the prophecies of Zechariah, are mentioned or alluded to in the New Testament. Zechariah points to the hope that we have and a Messiah that is to come. And so that's how we come to Zechariah chapter 3. Here at the beginning of Zechariah, there's a number of, of dreams and visions that Zechariah is given while he's sleeping. And, and so one of them, the, the fourth of eight visions, is this one that comes here in Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to read the entire chapter here, 10 verses in Zechariah chapter 3, and look at the vision that Zechariah has of Joshua, the high priest. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Israel. Rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This vision of Zechariah, this vision of Joshua, the high priest, is a scene that we are somewhat familiar with. This scene that Zechariah has in a vision is a typical, at least here at the beginning, a typical courtroom scene. And we can understand that. We've seen Law and Order. We know Matlock. We know the idea of the courtroom scene. 
So let me tell you, let me lay out the characters for you in this courtroom scene. The first one that we come upon is Joshua the high priest. Joshua the high priest, he's the representative for all people. In fact, he is the example. He is the one that comes before God, would have come before God in the temple, though it was not yet rebuilt. But he was the one that came before God as a representative of the people. He was our representative, yours and mine. He's the defendant here in this courtroom scene. The judge, the one that's on the bench, the second character that we see, is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, as we've talked about previously, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is most typically referred to by commentators and and theologians as the pre-incarnate Jesus. So when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, most times you'll see that that is the, the, the second part of the Trinity, the son part of the Trinity, but it's before the son comes to earth, it's before God becomes man in Jesus, it's before the incarnation. He's a pre-New Testament Jesus that we find in the Old Testament. And he's here on the bench, and he is a holy representative of God. And the third character we know well as well. He's the prosecutor in this courtroom scene. It's Satan, the accuser. In fact, that's what his name means, accuser. And he's set to accuse, to prosecute the defendant. Satan comes with Joshua, the high priest, on trial and comes before the holy, righteous angel of the Lord as the judge. Satan is ready to do his accusatorial duty. That's what he does. All through Scripture we find that's what he does. It's his job. He sees it as his job to accuse. It's Satan's job to remind us of our sin. It's Satan's job to place blame. It's Satan's job to heap guilt on us. It's Satan's job to cover us with shame. And Satan shows up here in this scene to do exactly that. He doesn't just do it during the times of the minor prophets, but he does it yet today. The New Testament reminds us that he's looking, that he's heaping guilt on us, that his job as accuser is still happening today. And so Satan comes ready to accuse, ready to rebuke, ready to heap guilt and shame on Joshua the high priest. The stage is set for this to happen. And yet we see right away in verse 2 that it happens wholly different than what Satan had thought might happen. Before Satan even is able to get out a single word, a rebuke comes, but it's not Satan against Joshua the high priest. Instead, the rebuke comes against Satan. In verse 2 it says, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? The angel of the Lord, God, 
the second person of the Trinity rebukes Satan. He says, these people, these are the people that I have chosen. Jerusalem, this is the group. This is the people that I have chosen. He is the representative of the ones that I have selected and picked. They are, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, they are my treasured possession. This is the brand, he says, that I have plucked out of the fire. They were destined for destruction. They were set to be burned in the fire. They were set to be destroyed. And I have rescued them. I have pulled them out. I have plucked them from the fire and rescued them from devastation, from an eternity of damnation. They are my chosen people. And he is their representative. And so before Satan can let a word out of his mouth, the angel of the Lord rebukes Satan. What can make the angel of the Lord respond in this way? It must be that Joshua stands there completely innocent, right? It must be that Joshua can't have any of those accusations thrown against him. He must be mistaken for someone else. He must be unable to have those accusations come against him. This man who is standing there as the defendant in this courtroom scene must be holy, right? Wrong. Verse three tells us that now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. This plucked from the fire treasured possession is as guilty as can be. He stands there in his filthy garments. I want you to have a picture this morning of what those filthy garments are. I've been thinking this week of of ways to try to explain what those filthy garments must be. And I've come up with a couple of ideas. One of those, and, and as Pastor Stephen one time told me that a man of a certain age, like me, would have a reference to these kinds of things. But a man of my age grew up on the Brady Bunch. You probably, if you're somewhere around my age, watch them as well. And you might remember the episode where the Brady Bunch has a contest between the laundry detergent that they've been asked to promote in a commercial and the laundry detergent that they normally use. It was a safe versus best contest. And the only way to figure out whether or not safe was actually a good laundry detergent to be recommended by the Bradys was for them to get as dirty as they possibly could. And so they went out in the backyard, if you remember this episode, and they did everything that they could. Greg and Peter and, and Bobby, Marsha, Jan, and Cindy, they, they did all kinds of crazy activities to get as filthy and as dirty as they possibly could so that they could test out this laundry detergent. They were filthy. They were completely covered in dirt and grime. That's an example of filthy garments. They were as dirty as you can be. But that's not the example here in Zechariah chapter 3. It's not playing in the yard and getting as dirty as you can be. The example 
What the word filthy garments actually means, the example that I think resonates a little bit more, is the idea of the parent of a newborn that can smell that there needs to be a diaper changing that happens. And so they bend down and pick up their beautiful little baby only to find out as they cradle their neck that they can feel the poop in the base of their hair. You know those kinds of diapers, right? Where there's been a blowout. It's not just in the diaper. It's up the back. It's up the front. It's everywhere. It's in all the clothes. We had a child that every single onesie they had had a line right across the middle of the back that had been stained from poop. It's the kind of diaper that when you peel it apart, you have no idea what to do. But the one thing you do know is that not only are you throwing the diaper away, but you possibly may have to throw all of it away. Keep the baby, but throw out (laughs) everything else. Because it's so covered in poop. That, that is what Zechariah is seeing here. These filthy garments, these filthy garments are not garments where he ran outside and played in the mud. These filthy garments, the word filthy is excrement. The word filthy is that these garments are covered in poop. That's the filthy garments that he's wearing. And we can only assume that Zechariah on this day of judgment would have put on his very best. He would have come in his cleanest, in his most pure, and in his most holy. And yet his garments are filthy. That's our sin. He's our representative. And that is our representation. Filthy, stinky, covered in excrement. No hope, gross, need to be thrown away garments. And whether it's by our own actions, playing in the yard, or the things that have spewed out from inside of us, we are covered in filthy garments. And we don't like to hear that. I already said it this morning. We don't, we don't like to spend time thinking about our sin. We think too little of it. We think too highly of it. That our sin really isn't that bad. That our sin, our sin, my sin, I think, is not that stinky. It's not that filthy. It's not that wretched. My sin is not that bad. I'm a little dirty, but I don't have filthy garments. And yet Joshua, the high priest, in this vision of Zechariah, is our representative. His best clothes, which are covered, are our best clothes. 
on our own, our clothes are just as gross as his. We are covered in filthy garments, and our sin is a total affront to a holy God. And the rest of this story, the rest of the hope that comes from Zechariah chapter 3, it doesn't matter as much if you don't understand that part. If you don't understand your sin, if you don't understand how dirty you are, how bad your sin is, how unholy you are to a holy God, you can't, you can't rejoice in the hope that comes in the rest of this story. Joshua, the high priest, was standing there in filthy garments. He wasn't holy. He wasn't innocent. The angel of the Lord rebukes Satan not because of what Joshua stands there in, but instead, our Lord sees Joshua standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel says to those who were standing before him in verse 4, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Our representative, standing in filthy garments, And the angel of the Lord says, take those away. Take that away. He says, I have taken your iniquity. That's mercy. I have not not given you what you deserve because of your filthy garments. I take them from you. And then he says, I clothe you with pure vestments. I give you something you do not deserve. That's grace. This take off and put on idea, that's the heart of the gospel. That we take off our sinfulness. We take off our sinful covering, our sinful clothes. We take off our sin and we put on his righteousness. We take off the old coverings and we put on the new. That's the hope of the gospel and we see it right here in Zechariah chapter 3 taken your iniquity and I've given you pure vestments. The angel of the Lord instructs the angel that's standing before him, take off his filthy garments and instead give him the pure, spotless clothing that he does not deserve. It's here in this story that Zechariah, the prophet himself who's having the dream, who's having the vision, Zechariah himself interjects into the vision himself. He's having this vision, he's seeing these things, and he sees that the angel says, says, remove the filthy garments from him. I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And Zechariah says, let them put a clean turban on his head. Zechariah himself, he sees this happening. He knows that that the, the high priest has his filthy garments removed. He has these new pure vestments covered on him and says, don't forget the turban. Don't forget the hat. Because if you remember in Deuteronomy, when Aaron is first given the turban that he's to wear as a high priest, it has a a badge 
on it that says, holy to the Lord. And Zechariah says, don't forget the hat. Don't forget the turban. Don't forget the final piece that when you put it on his head, it's all said and done. He is holy to the Lord. Don't forget the turban. Zechariah wants to establish the fact that this high priest, this representative of you and me, is in fact covered and holy to the Lord. As the vision goes on, as the vision goes on, after the removal of the filthy garment, after the placement of pure and clean vestments on our representative, after the turban is set on his head, Joshua is given an instruction. The angel of the Lord in verse 6, the angel of the Lord solemnly assures Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and you keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. He says, I've given you pure vestments. I've put on the turban on your head, holy to the Lord. You, your filthy garments are gone. You've been covered now in pure vestments. Your hat declares you as holy to the Lord. And he says, now all you have to do is follow my commands. You've been covered. You've been changed. You've you've been given new clothing. Now all you have to do, now you can start over. Now you're fresh. Now you're clean. Now all you have to do is obey my commands. That's all you have to do from here on out. You're covered, you're clean, you're taken care of. Follow my commands. And yet we know even the result of that. You and I both know that the innate, selfish nature of our own hearts, that the sinfulness that we have inside of us leads us. It leads us back to sin again and again. But there's one more glorious hope and promise in this passage. He goes on to say in verse 8, he goes on to say, Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are the men who are assigned, he says, behold, I will bring, I will bring my servant the branch. He says, I want you to follow these commands, except he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't say, you have to follow my commands, we're starting you over, we're sending you off, you're on your own. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm bringing someone else, I'm bringing the branch, the root of Jesse, as we have looked at before. The branch, the promised king from the line of David. That was even promised back in Amos chapter 9 last week. The promised king from the line of David. The stone, Zechariah goes on to hear. The cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. He is coming. I will send, I will bring my servant the branch. And then he says in verse 9, 
and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. That day is not the day of Zechariah's vision. It's not the courtroom scene day. The day when he removes the iniquity is a day that comes hundreds of years later when the branch, when the cornerstone is in his own courtroom scene and is accused and yet he's completely innocent of the charges that come against him. And he's sent out of the courtroom to a hill called Golgotha. He's stripped of all of his clothes and not given pure vestments, but instead given a beating. And instead of a clean turban that gets placed on his head, he gets a crown of thorns placed on his head. And instead of a badge over that, saying holy to the Lord, he gets a mocking sign that says king of the Jews. The branch, the stone, the Messiah, the angel of the Lord, who has come now to earth and is named Jesus, doesn't get pure vestments, but instead takes on my sin, your sin. Those filthy garments that he took away from the high priest, that's what Jesus puts on. He became sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of God. There's hope in Zechariah chapter 3. Not that we can keep our clothes clean on our own, because we can't. We won't. But he's sending the one. And we know on this side of the cross that he has sent the one who will wear my sin so that I might have the righteousness of God. He closes this chapter in verse 10. He says, in that day, after he removes the iniquity of all of this land in a single day, when, when Jesus st- hangs on the cross and says, it is finished, that's the day. That's the single day when the iniquity is removed. And then in that day, looking again to the future, The Lord of hosts says, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. We don't understand that picture. For us, I think this picture is is sweet tea on the front porch. Everything's done. And now it's time to rejoice in the peace that comes from everything being accomplished. It's all been finished. It's all been taken care of. It's all been cared for. There's hope for the future, both for Zechariah and for us. 
That's what we celebrate this morning as we come to the table to celebrate in communion. That God sent his one and only son to become sin for us so that we might know the righteousness of God because while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us and he covers us in his robes of righteousness for all who believe. There's an invitation, a communion invitation in your bulletin. It's also on the screen. If you can live under that invitation, if you read that and you know that you have placed the full weight of your hope in Christ, that you are not trying to clean your own clothes, but you have trust, trusted in the righteousness that comes from Jesus, and you can live under this invitation, we want you to celebrate in communion with us this morning. We have an open communion here at Richland. If you can live under this invitation, we hope you'll celebrate with us. The function of how we do it is that we will have some elders that will come in just a moment and prepare these elements, and then they will go walk down the aisles releasing different rows at different times. We would love for you to come forward and to take the elements and to hold them, and we'll take communion together. If you're uncomfortable with that this morning, or if you... If you have questions and you don't understand exactly what's happening, please feel free to stay in your seat or to come on up front and just to walk by the elements, not take them. We'll celebrate in communion together in just a moment. We have hope this morning. We have hope this morning because Jesus Christ stepped away from the front, stepped off of the judge's spot and took the punishment for us so that we might have his righteousness so that we might have hope so let's celebrate in that together this morning Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart I know that while in heaven he stands no tongue can bid me thence depart no tongue can bid me thence depart when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died 
tempts me to despair, upward I look and see him there. Jesus Christ made a way for us to have our sins covered. And so we rejoice in him this morning. Take the body and eat and be grateful. It's through the shedding of blood that we have forgiveness for our sins. So take and drink and be reminded of his blood for you. Our benediction this morning comes from Revelation chapter 5. It says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever.